Today's show is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Since you are listening to this podcast, you know that Mack Weldon makes the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you will ever wear. I am wearing the socks right now. That's why I sound so comfortable. I pay for these things with my own money. That is the single best endorsement you can get from me, Peter Kafka. They're also made of naturally antimicrobial fiber that will eliminate odor. I smell great right now as I'm speaking these words to you. They're easy to buy and check out for yourself. You go to MacWeldon.com, you get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. If for some reason you don't like this stuff, they will send you your money back. You keep it. It's great. 20% off is good for you. It's good for me because I get to keep doing this. Go to MacWeldon.com, use the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. Enjoy your socks. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. That is a real company with a funny name. Speaking of funny names, I'm here with Jim Lanzone. Your name is not that funny. How are you doing, Jim? It's funny here. Jim, tell people what you do for real. So I am the CEO of CBS Interactive, which is the digital division of CBS. And I am also chief digital officer of CBS Corporation, which means that I also oversee all digital for CBS. So if you are looking at something that CBS owns and it's not on a TV set, you probably got to touch it in some way. Yeah, and not everything is part of CBS Interactive, the P&L, which is the, the standalone business. Yeah, that these I run, are details. You get yes. to do all the cool yes. stuff that we get that's fun to talk <laughs> about. So it's, it's we'll talk about streaming, video, and all of that good stuff. Uh, you run CNET. Yep. Is radio still yours? No, radio is about to be, but, like we run the websites but, yeah. and apps, but no, it's no, about we'll to be spun off on IPO. Before you were at CBS, you were an entrepreneur, you created Clicker, you were kind of trying to disrupt slash work with companies like CBS. In the very old days, you did search. You're that old? Yes. Yes, so I was in the search engine wars. We'll talk about all that. We're going to do some time travel here. We're taping this before CBS does earnings, so I'm not going to ask you about CBS's earnings anyway, because who cares? <laughs> um, there's also various stuff going on. There's deals that you're in the middle of that may or may not be done by the time this thing gets done, so right. you can just plead the fifth whenever you okay. get to that stuff. But let's talk about really big picture about TV first. Okay. So AT&T wants to buy Time Warner. There's this now sort of set of what happens if that deal goes through? What happens to the rest of the media business? There's the distribution business. There's the content business. You work for a company that makes content, doesn't own pipes. What does AT&T, Time Warner make you think about? Do you think, all right, this is good. This validates that we make content and that's valuable. Does it make you think maybe we got to go find some sort of distribution partner? Yeah, no, I think, well, officially no comment on the deal. And yeah, officially good. at don't this tell point anyone. in time yeah. before this airs, that deal isn't confirmed to happened yet. But yeah, I think, over, and there's a lot to unpack in what you said on distribution and content and everything else. But I think our overall view is that it's just another data point that talks about the strength of premium content. And that as one of the world's largest creators of that, it's a, it's a good spot to be in. Now, everything else going on in the market around us, those are all things that we have to adapt to yep. uh, and figure out our way through. But yeah, it feels like a good spot to be in as, as being CBS and being a premium content creator. Because one way you could look at it is Jeff Buke is a pretty smart guy. He runs Time Warner. He's selling. So if he's selling, maybe everyone else should on the content side should be selling. Another way you could flip it around and say the guys at AT&T have a big distribution business. They seem to think that's not enough, so they're buying content. It's sort of You could argue the pro-distribution side or the pro-content side, depending on which whose stock you're buying, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and I think if you're, you know, you write Recode Media and you have to analyze that whole space, you're kind of trying to play that out. As you, just, you just kind of type stuff up we, and you see if anyone <laughs> clicks on it. As operators, we, you know, are, at this point, 
you know, Les said a few months ago in, in one of his... That'd be Les Moonves, Les Moonves, my boss, in at an analyst conference, you know, that we are no longer just a broadcast network or a multi-platform company. That's absolutely the, the, you know, the view that we have, that that's how we're trying to wade our way through all this and get that great content out to our users, you know, wherever and however they want to consume it. And so that's more the challenge for us is how we figure our, our way through that rather than the landscape overall. So in the very old days, you guys put stuff up on antennas and, and shoved it out and you made money selling ads that way. And then for the last few years, you've been doing that as well as getting money from traditional pay TV distributors. They pay you money, right? Right. Transmission fees, um, retransmission fees. Mm-hmm. And so you were a wholesaler. You wholesaled the content to people who then passed it along to people like me who bought it through Time Warner Cable and you sold ads. And now there's this drumbeat about from people saying, well, maybe in addition to that and or replacing that model, we should sell our content directly to consumers like Netflix does. People are playing with the margins. You guys have, have actually started down this path, right? You're selling, I can buy access to CBS. I can watch CBS live if I pay you, what, six bucks a month? Six dollars a month. And it's called CBS All Access. So yeah, Did you I say all paying access? for that access. Yeah, so I'm paying for all yeah. that access. So I remember when you guys launched this, what, a couple years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago. And I thought, well, this seems like a press release, not a product. Who would buy this thing if you right. can get it for free over the airwaves and or it's packaged up in other places? Who's possibly going to pay $6 a month? This has to be like a theoretical thing. But you guys have come out since and said you have a million subscribers paying for this. Yeah, over a million. How'd that happen? How'd you do that? And <laughs> well, why are they paying? I think a couple things. So one is, well, the history of that is that years ago – we had a partnership with Real Networks around Big Brother. And so we created this thing called the Super Real P- Networks Super is Pass. still a company. It was, <laughs> was a pioneer in, in, in online video. Yeah. And as an experiment, there was a product. Big Brother is a TV show. That I don't think Super anyone Pass watches Big who Brother listens to this. But. For people who wanted to watch the Big Brother household 24 hours a day and have three or four different camera feeds. Yeah. And there were over 100,000 people who wanted to pay $4 a month for the privilege of doing just that. You had 100,000 people paying to watch extra Big Brother creeper footage. Right. And so that's what cued us into the super fan and the thought that there are people out there who want more of our content, want to be able to access it in more places, and are are willing to pay. And so we we built All Access originally as more towards that, not as something just in reaction to the overall landscape or different people doing skinny bundles or going direct to the consumer, but giving those people a product that we could offer – off the back of CBS.com, which is already giving you the last five episodes free, you know, of our shows that we own. So the, the All Access product was give you all shows all through history, all the way back to I Love Lucy for the, you know, again, the shows that we own. Uh, full stacking, which means everything, you know, for all seasons of The Good Wife, for example. Um, in addition to a lower ad load. Uh, and then something that we created for the first time, which is the ability to get, you know, we essentially geofence every DMA, and you can get a live feed of your local CBS station through the app as well. So a few things bundled into that product, and you know, different people want it for different reasons, but they in total are over a million so far. Did you think you were going to have a million subscribers for this? Yeah, I mean, I think we thought. Look, we didn't think this was a anything more than just, you know, accessing those fans. But we thought that that was a, a number in the millions that we would be able to get, you know, uh, get to and, and would want to subscribe to it. And that was before the thought of, you know, then adding original content and other things that you could do for that audience. Because you guys are going to bundle well. this. You guys are rebooting Star Trek. There's right. going to be Star a Good Trek Wife spinoff. Next May, a Good Wife sequel that uh, is 
from the show creators of The Good Wife that launches in February. Uh, and then we, we launched her, the first one is actually our, it's called Big Brother Over the Top, which is, is happening right now. And, and that's our first original. Um, so I want to come back to Star Trek in a minute, but while well, it's still in my head. In the past, when people talked about this kind of thing, like maybe the networks will sell their stuff individually a la carte, and for years, everyone said the conventional wisdom was can't do that because there's this TV industrial ecosystem where content makers like you get paid by the Time Warner Cables and Charters and Comcast of the world, and if you start selling it directly over the internet to customers, that screws it up, and you can't break out of that, and the the old way of doing business is too profitable, and plus you've got really long-term contracts, and if you step out of that, you're going to get slapped around and the risk is too much. It's going to be too much headache to do that. But now you've done it. HBO has done it. More and more folks are doing it. How much work did you guys have to do either internally to sort of get comfortable with that notion and or going out to the Comcast, the world, well, saying, here's what we're doing? So we never viewed it as competitive or trying to access their market. It was super fans, people who want something very different than what you get on broadcast television. That's what you say. Which is our entire library. Them, and they say, yeah, that's a potential but customer that's not you're taking you get from us. on channel two or channel five, yep. right? You don't get every episode, oh, you know, over 8,500 episodes going back. This is our catalog, yeah. essentially. I get that that's part um, of your pitch, but you're so, also saying, you've got ads saying, watch The Good Wife live on CBS. And that is someone who could watch that right. on Comcast. But again, as another proof point to that, you know, our target is 4 million subscribers by 2020. Uh-huh. And you're talking about a universe of 100 million households with cable or satellite. Like this is just – and this is in addition to that, right? This is something for, for the people who want more than just broadcast. So that's why we never looked at it as something competitive with that. It is a direct relationship with the customer. It is important to our business to try to diversify revenue and have, have people, you know, paying subscription fees as opposed to pure advertising. You know, there's another – there are a number of reasons, but that wasn't – one of them. Now, at the same time, if you look at the landscape overall, they all have skinny bundle products right now, and everybody's trying to access a certain kind of customer, which is the other person besides the super fan, which are the you know the cord cutters and cord nevers, who are who are a you know a small but a a you know a certain percentage of the audience that we also want to have access to, and I think that's what everybody else is trying to figure out. The good news is for all of those, we're also part of a lot of those bundles, and that's also part of our strategy, which is we. You know, they all need us as the number one broadcast network, and we want to be distributed in all those places. So we're, you know, we're doing. It's both. an ecosystem, and your partners are going to be frenemies, though. Sort of over time, you're going to be. They're going to sell your product, but you're also going to compete with them. And you know, I, I've heard a similar pitch from that's, the HBO guys. We're not competing with you. We're going after this audience. Of that's 10 an old or word for me. I remember Eric Schmidt bringing it, it up it, it in, is uh, in an Ask Jeeves Google meeting long ago. So <laughs> and I know the HBO guys have been saying we're not competing with Comcast, and 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 for a year or so because they've been selling HBO directly. They've been trying to convince the Comcast of the world to work with them, and Comcast is saying, like, basically, no. They're still cold about that. So when you explain this to the Comcast of the world, what's their reaction? No, I think our relationship with them is still really still healthy. And, and, cool. and again, they're working on products that are in this area yeah. as well. So we're all trying different things and, and trying to figure out, you know, the next five or ten years and, and how that's all going to work. But, I mean, at the end of the day – we both have huge businesses together that are not going anywhere fast. I mean, if you again, if you if you look at the breakdown of how people consume television today, it's still you know fifty to sixty percent live, thirty to thirty five percent DVR, and then roughly like five percent VOD and five percent internet. Right. So the majority of all this is still that way, 
And you but talk about how the rate of change is accelerating. That's why that's why it, Wall Street it, it freaks out. That's is, why companies like ESPN that look super powerful is, a couple years ago are now data, more tenuous. If you talk to the real data people and analysts, you know, within our companies or a, and you look at that rate of change, it's it's hard to see that it overtakes any of the the you know the main ways people are consuming this content anytime soon. So I'll give you two, you know, two views of that. So one is how slowly the DVR, which is really the biggest change of the past, you know, 15, 20 years, because it's gone, it's, you know, it's, it's initiated delayed viewing, which is, is the big, you know, habit change. But even there at 30% plus of viewership, it's only in 53% of households today. And you and I in our lives would think, oh, it's 100% of the people yeah, that we know. But it's not going to grow. But it's only in 53%, yeah. you know, of all households. The second is, talk about rate of change. The overall trend is just the increase in media consumed. And so it's really not, you know, zero sum game in terms of how much they're viewing our content through television because just in the last year, the amount of media consumed by the average person has gone from 10 hours to 11 hours in this country and TV and DVR have stayed relatively flat. But something All has the growth happened. has come. But, but something in has happened, devices. right? Because because for years I could write a story saying just what you said, nothing's really changed. You might read on a blog that no one's paying for TV anymore, but they are. Here are the numbers to prove it. And for years, um, people like Les Moonves or Jeff Bukas would say, there is no audience of cord cutters. They don't exist. They, there's no audience right. for them. Now in the last couple of years, they go, oh, yeah, actually, there, there is a big audience. There's 10 or 12 million of them, or there's more. And then we've seen TV ratings decline across the board, um, whether it's for traditional programming, for live. There's an NFL question now. And I think the, the best argument is that a couple of years ago, you guys wouldn't be selling your stuff directly. So something's moving quickly enough to make you guys sort of change your business. Not fundamentally, but I mean, you got to realize it was two years ago that we launched it. Yep. It took, you know, a year to build it. It took a year or two before that to do the business plan to figure out that we should start building it to then launch it. So it's not like you're not a nimble ship crept crept up on us, you know, overnight. But I think that the trend is multi-platform. The other big trend is best screen available, and the Super Bowl is the best example of that, where. We had it on all screen. You know, we've broadcast you online. You guys streamed the Super Bowl. We streamed the last two Super Bowls that we had, 2013, 2016. It looked pretty good. I streamed it just to see what it looked like. Yeah. No, it worked great. And that's all of our own technology. We're not outsourcing. I mean, it's a stack that we've put together, you know, that's proprietary ourselves. And there's a few reasons why we do that. But the same thing for all access and other ways that we stream online. But 115, 120 million people watched that game on broadcast. And even though it was free online, on all devices, it was only 4 million people watching that game, you know. And so I think the moral of that story is best screen available. For people, you know, the people who had watched it on a smaller screen were about, were people on the go or who, who just couldn't see it on the big screen. So anyway, so I'm just saying that overall, yes, they're watching live, they're watching through DVR, they're watching VOD, they're watching through streaming. And now the big trend is OTT, you know, the, these boxes that are connected to the internet, connected to the television, that's where we're seeing the biggest growth, you know, in viewership. So again, which is saying they want to see it on the big screen. It's kind of coming back that way. You've been at CBS for how long? Five and a half years. And the core, they're a TV business. Do you see your job as protecting that business, saying this is the core of the business, and we're going to figure out strategies to help sort of prop that up as long as we can, keep that revenue as strong as long as we can? Or is it your job to go, I'm going to try to push less moon because it doesn't get pushed very easily? into the future and get him to move more quickly than he would like. So we'll work backwards. Les wants that evolution. He wants that change with the goal squarely being on growing the audience and growing revenue and profit. 
And so we're agnostic to how we approach that. We're just being realistic about, you know, the landscape and, and really you're driven by consumers and what they want, which is kind of a, you know, a rote answer, but it's, it's absolutely how we look at it internally, right? So I have to say it. <laughs> That's, that actually is what drives us. You're saying you so want to, you want to sell there. a product that consumers want to yeah, consume? Yeah, I'm not in there just to be a, a shit starter, just to disrupt things for no reason, right? It's, you know, we're running a real business, but that business is evolving and digital is obviously a huge part of that. Let's talk about some of the other parts of digital in a second. You guys make money from advertising. We do as well. Not quite as much, but we're going to hear from a fine sponsor right now. We'll be back in a minute. SoFi is a new kind of finance company. If you've taken out student loans to invest in yourself and your career, SoFi wants to help you out. SoFi members who refinance their federal and private student loans can save an average of $17,000. But they're not a bank, so they can do cool things a bank doesn't do, like they give you tons of great perks. You get career strategy services, an entrepreneurship program, customer support seven days a week. You can even get invitations to local SoFi events. There's happy hour, professional panels, networking. I think SoFi even brought some people to the Code Conference last year, which is a very cool benefit. From saving money on student loans to helping you build your career, SoFi wants to help you reach every goal you set. You can find your rate at SOFI.com. That's SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company everyone can afford. With a Videoblock subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. And one day I will learn what a cinemagraph is. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same stuff you find on more expensive sites. It's just cheaper. Cheaper is better than expensive. As a subscriber, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. So if you stop paying them, you still get to keep the content you downloaded from them forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's $50 off the usual price tag for my listeners only. That's you. Get your yearly subscription today for only $99 at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's videoblocks.com slash recode for this exclusive offer. We'd also like to welcome our newest sponsor, Lenovo, for supporting this podcast. Thank you, Lenovo. You make this podcast free. We appreciate that. The cloud is no longer just the place where you back up your phone. Businesses need the cloud to expand their computing power. Thanks to Lenovo Cloud Data Services, they can increase or decrease server capacity and horsepower on demand. That's a really big deal. You no longer need rooms of servers. You go to Lenovo. They rent you their servers. But your team can still test applications and stage products just like they do today. They just don't need the expensive hardware. Lenovo servers are number one in reliability and performance because this kind of flexibility is worthless if the service isn't there when you need it. Lenovo Systems can even help you partner with your old vendors to create a smooth transition. Learn how Lenovo is transforming the data center at lenovo.com slash data center. Back here with Jim Lanzone, we're comparing different hotels where, where Jim likes to stay and, and doesn't like to stay when he's in New York. That'll be the bonus clip. You can watch that on All Access. But there's a bunch of stuff I want to ask you about, and I want to ask you about CNET. But before I forget, the All Access stuff uh, you're selling, so there's a $6 version with ads, and then if I want to watch without ads, it's 10 bucks. Is that right? Right. nine ninety nine without ads. So that's another interesting thing where you're sort of undercutting a traditional business, or you could look at it that way. Because, again, you make most or at least half your money from advertising. Now you're allowing people to consume your content in real time right. without ads. How difficult was that to sort of figure out whether or not you wanted to do not it? Not that bad. I mean, I think other people have done it, and so we kind of knew it was a small but loyal, demanding percentage of our audience. And so 
you know, essentially it's a wash in terms of, you know, how much we would make by them watching the ads, how right. much we make by them subscribing. Don't you worry so about setting the precedent of saying you that. can get CBS without ads and this is now an ex- – because Netflix, right, this is part of – I think one of the reasons you have no. to do it, right, is that Netflix has 50 million subscribers and they don't watch ads and the expectation is we should be able to watch more of our TV the, this way. The vast majority of people would rather pay less or even pay nothing, yeah. right, with the free product and watch ads. So, so that th- this is a, su- a subset of a subset. the super fan. It's the super, like three super fan that would even want that product. All right, I think I'm in that group. So there's going to be I can watch whatever else is on on CBS, and then there's like we talked about. There's going to be a Good Wife. I'm calling it a spinoff sequel. It's going to have a something. new title and a new. It's it's a lot of the old cast, a Star Trek Bransky and and all that. It's an, it's most of the old cast in a completely new storyline within the same. Universe. So since you're producing this stuff, it's only going to appear on the internet, right? It's not. I can't watch. No, we're this actually on... going to debut them on broadcast. Oh, you will. Okay. And then you know the the pilot episode, and then future episodes will be same, online. Same for and Star Trek. We'll figure so, out as right. we go, so, like how you kind of mix and match between that. So some stuff will appear on TV, but some stuff will be online only, most likely. Right. So given that you're going to sell a lot of people are only going to watch this online, it's probably a different audience that watches traditional CBS. Do you do something different with the content? A bit. I mean, if you think about Star Trek, sci-fi is not something that's traditionally done really well on broadcast. There's no NCIS Star Trek. And that's not possible for the future if somebody figures it out. And things like Lost and Heroes have had parts of, you know, of sci-fi. But historically, they haven't, you know, a show like Star Trek wouldn't necessarily be a broadcast show at this point. And so you kind of look at the other networks that we have, uh, CW and and Showtime, it just – it just fit, you know, with the digital audience and having that loyal Star Trek audience. It was a. It just made sense that that's a great place to to put it, and it's something unique for all access that would bring subscribers. At the same time, you know, we've partnered with Netflix for all international distribution, and that went a long way towards helping fund it, you know, as well. So it's a different model and different. So you're, right. So you're competing with Netflix, but you're also working with them. Yeah. They're a partner here. But um, and since this is, some of this stuff won't appear on TV, it means there's no FCC regulation. Does that mean there's going to be nudity or yeah. swearing? Which was an interesting part of the first meeting with them because yeah. I don't think the original. That's originally, yes, the show be, the, were like, there'll be naked people in Star Trek. They were like, oh yeah, we could do that. So you know, and of course the response is as, as long as it serves the story. But yeah, so I mean, naked aliens or humans, the, if theoretically. And swearing. Whatever future swearing 300 years ago. I'm much more excited about Star Trek now than I thought I was. (laughs) When you came in, you weren't running TV. Your main job was to take care of CBS Digital, and that was primarily CNET, right? No, it was both at that point. So, you know, the way we think of it is there's there's essentially two parts of the company. CBS Digital Media, which is CBS.com, CBSNews.com, CBSSports.com, and then there's about 10 or 11 other properties that, you know, kind of are behind that, including all the sub-shows, so 48 Hours and CBS This Morning right. and all this. Taking all the stuff that's on TV and there's a digital subset Yeah, and that. that was already moving when I got here. It yep. wasn't nearly as big as it is now, but but it was just kind of still getting started. But, you know, CBSSports.com was a public company that was acquired in early 2000s called Sportsline. And that's really a lot of what I run. It's, it really is a conglomerate of 30-plus brands across all these different verticals, a lot of which were brought in by acquisition. So CNET was the biggest that was, in 2008. That was like a billion, eight, Almost right? two billion. Yeah. And they like bought right at the peak. But even within that, right, they acquired ZDNet and they acquired yeah. things. And, and then there's GameSpot and video games, which competes with IGN, TV Guide, you know, and others. Um, so 
Collectively, that's we're the in September we're the number six overall property according to Comscore, 167 million U.S. uniques. So this is this is a recurring um, thing with you and me because you'll occasionally say, "Why are you talking to that guy? That guy runs a small internet property. I run a much bigger internet property. I, I'm, I'm the number six. Uh, we weren't all audience in Comscore, six. but we're you, six. so and I say you're right, but take this in the manner in which it's intended. A lot of those properties don't. Maybe they were big names at one point. They seem to be less prominent now. Is it important for you to sort of make ZDNet or CNET um, more popular as sort of a consumer brand again? Or are you fine as long as they're generating impressions and revenue? Yeah, I think you play the game on the field, right? And in this case, like CNET is still by far the biggest tech brand in the United States. Measured by audience. No, not just by audience. By if you actually survey people, it's the main tech brand that they can If we went out on the street – we right. ask people what is, is they would say. Mainstream CNET. America, not in our industry, not our fancy in terms of Manhattan world. It being the the hippest, you know, tech brand right now. There are others, but to mainstream America, which is and, and so that's what I'm saying is like that's that audience. That's who knows that brand in the video game space. They know Gamespot. That's one of the biggest brands. It doesn't mean other new ones haven't come along. It's just that they're still really, you know, they're still really big in their vertical. So, to your Point. I mean, CNET has had its best four years in its history the past four years on all fronts, on audience, revenue, profit. It has been growing every single year and is bigger than it's ever been so over its 20 when you go to history. an advertiser and say, I got CNET, they all know what that is. They don't want to be involved in The Verge or Buzz. I'm sure they want to do all those things. Well, for two Especially reasons. The Verge, which One is, is awesome we property. dwarf everybody else uh-huh. in terms of the amount of traffic that we have on reviews for tech products. And so if you want to intercept a user at the moment that they're making a decision – at scale, CNET is by far the number one. Is that because they're typing in CNET or they're typing in review of iPhone Both. and they and search drives on there? Both. Like, for example, I can't remember which iPhone launch it was, but within the last couple of years, there was a new iPhone launch. The number one search on Google Trends that day was CNET. So people, in, again, in, in mainstream America, they're, that's you know, not the only brand that they know, but the biggest tech brand that they know. Again, ZDNet, which is something I didn't know before I worked here, is still big in the IT space. So that's selling B2B lead gen is the advertising model for that, you know, selling leads, you know, to CIOs and explain, CMOs Explain and to the others. few people who, are, who don't know how no, lead gen business works. It's marketing. You know, you're, you're buying leads, essentially, to be able to market to, you know, C-suite decision makers. So that's not, you know, ZDNet. And by the way, with Mary Jo Foley and others, I mean, we still – break a lot of news. We still do yep. a lot of reporting. It still gets, you know, a certain amount of traffic and it's revenue wise. It's bigger than a lot of brands. So it's not that, a reclam- it's bigger than a lot of brands that you would think. It's not a reclamation project for you. It's a, it's a business that's humming and you don't need to fix it and retool it. Well, a lot of these things needed that. I mean, especially if you're 20 years in and it's one of the things that my team I think is pretty good at is, is coming in and, and modernizing, and whether that's just the core basics of SEO or social media strategy or design or you know any of those things, page speed, you know, that's one thing. Um, you know, yield management, monetization, like that's another thing that we're good at and that we help do. But really, you know, at the end of the day, CNET is still a premium content business and one of the two or three most lucrative verticals. And if you think about our overall strategy, right? So it's not a one brand company which has its limits, right, when you're talking about 30 brands. But the one thing tying them all together is that they're all premium content, either with super premium, you know, you know fictional content or, or, you know, on the CBS side or sports or news, or we're operating in a lucrative vertical with CNET or games or others uh, where you still have high CPM advertising. That's the model for us. You're mentioning older brands, we're talking about search. That's where you got your start, right? No, I mean, technically I got my start. 
in Web 1.0 uh, in the late 90s with a startup. Which was? It was uh, unfortunately named eTour. It was, was not a, a travel site. Uh, it was <laughs> it was stumble upon kind of you know 0.9. So it that was, was the company you started or went to work for? I was one of the founders. You were one of the so founders. I was the product founder of three people from business school plus our, our CTO, these four founders, and we all started it. So you're one of the many dudes who came out of business school in the late 90s and said, I'm starting an internet company. No, it was even more than that. Uh, I got an internship when I was in business school. Never, you know, and I was always a media person growing up. Like I was, you know, I was just always one of those people super into music and TV and movies. And so when the internet happened, I was on it immediately. And so there was an internship offer and I went to work for an online company. in one of the original online companies, meaning like dial-up online. And it was a public records company that had been bought by Thompson and Westlaw. So this was like a LexisNexis competitor. They didn't have an online presence, so I helped build that out. And it became like a top 100 site in like that 1996-7 original period. We were doing credit card sales before anybody was. I was doing the banner ads. I was doing the PR, all this stuff. So that's where I came from to join up with my my classmates and starting eTour. We're getting in on we, this, and you come in near the, the peak yeah, of the bubble. No, like, before. We were, we were funded before eBay. I mean, you could have, you know, we could have done other stuff, but we had this idea of you would essentially hit a next site button and instead of you searching through the internet, we would we would sift out the best sites for you. The difference with StumbleUpon was it was socially driven. We were pre-social. We had a team of 40 editors, you know, out there hand-picking sites and then our business model was you would pay to have your site directly introduced to somebody. So it was very what, I wonder what percent of people listening here know what StumbleUpon is. It was, yeah, it was a hot side for a minute. Yeah. Oh, for a while. And, and Garrett Camp, yeah, who Garrett founded, Camp and founded and Uber. So we all, we all have so our, our origin story. <laughs> and, and then at some point you're at Ask Jeeves, right? They bought kind of what was left of it after the crash. And, and Ask so, Jeeves is one of the original well, – there used to be more than one search engine, and Ask Jeeves was one of them. Yes. And so post – when they acquired us, I joined as VP of product who, who acquired Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves acquired, acquired your you know, kind company. of e-tour yeah. post-crash. And – so I joined as VP of product, and so that was a turnaround. When I joined, Ask Jeeves was 79 cents a share, $30 million market cap, and yeah, one of like 15 search engines, most of whom were public, and we were public. And so we had to figure out how to thread the needle to survive and grow as a public company at that point. And that was pre-search having a revenue model, which was just kind of starting to figure it out, and so that's that's what we did. So you did that, and then at some point, Barry Dill requires Ask Jeeves? So we... Yeah, so we scaled that back up to, you know, over a $2 billion company again. We were the only major search engine to survive all that other than Google and the big portals, right? You still had Yahoo, Microsoft, AOL, but we were really the only one to do that and the only one to grow market share in any meaningful way. You know, again, you're talking like single-digit percentage points, but up against Google at that time, you know, we were the only ones to do that. And then Barry acquired us in February of 05, I think it was now. Right. So there was that period of time where so, you'd still have people like Barry Diller saying, I think I can compete with Google. I mean, Microsoft's still trying to do it. But, but for a while, there was a no. window where there was still, I'm going to offer something different. It seemed really difficult to do at the time, and obviously it was difficult. How long did you stick around that for? Well, so we did so well that my boss, Steve Berkowitz, got recruited out to run all of Internet for Microsoft. And we were legit. I mean, we had amazing search technology, amazing search engineers, a novel technology. And on the front end, we were, you know, if you talk to Danny Sullivan or any of these people, we were, we were one of the leading innovators on the user interface side 
for what became the modern search engine of being beyond 10 blue links and a, a robust right. search page. Walt Mossberg, you know, uh, from Recode, like he wrote two articles in one year, you know, saying how much better that interface was than than Google's. And so what what is, um, what is the lesson we learned from having a better a better mousetrap that still doesn't succeed? Wait, the thing about turnarounds is and the thing about a situation like that is you focus on your growth versus yourself. You don't worry about everybody else. And, and in search, it's almost binary, right? If someone's coming twice a month and they come back four times a month, it's, it's really double the number of searches. And so that's how you grow, you know, against it. And that's what we were focused on. And you can measure on, you know, as many A-B tests as you want to conduct, you can do in the search engine. And that's how you tweak it to know how to grow. So we were always focused on our own growth. And the revenue model became so good that it was linear growth, you know, if you could just get more searches. So that's why it worked. It worked, but where is it now? Ask is still a billion-plus revenue company as part of IEC. I mean, it's still, if you look at global traffic numbers, it's still top Right, because there's top lots of these brands that still kick around that people still go to either because well, they've been trained to is, or because search because it's got so much SEO value. Well, and search is still probably the number one activity online. It has the best revenue model online. And so you can have a single-digit percentage of market share and search and still be a really big company. But you decide you do not want to be in the search business anymore. You go off to sort of reinvent TV, create a company called Clicker. This is the company you start from the ground up. And the idea was make a better TV guide online. You wouldn't call it that, but I would. No, I did. Yeah, okay. that, that was, maybe, maybe, I think maybe, the TV guide people weren't stoked about that at the time. And Christy Tanner, who ran that, now works for us running CBS News. Uh, online. So but, this was around the time Hulu has come up, YouTube's already a thing, and the idea was we're going to show you where everything is online and you can you we were, learn how to watch we it. Were, we were early, for sure. Like now, About now is when, is when the market is really you know, needing a product like Clicker. But the way we viewed the world, and it was, it was Bill Gurley who became my main investor, um, Dave Goldberg who passed away, it was, it was part of my, you know, we kind of came up with the idea together that we would create you know, a combination search engine and then curated, you know, personalized, you know, guide that was, yeah, it was the next generation TV guide, which would be search-based and have to then essentially meta-search all of these databases across all the different providers. We saw that coming. And then we indexed all the way down to the mid-tail. Like, we indexed huge amounts of YouTube and everything. So you could search all of it. And then along the way, we did things like we were one of Facebook's original first partners to then personalize those feeds so that things would be recommended to you, you could see what your friends were doing. So that was... We were only around for 18 months at beta launch uh, before CBS acquired us, but that was the vision. You know, when, when you were early, it's, it seems like this is a basic idea. Why were you too early? How did that manifest itself? What, was, what, what couldn't you do that you wanted to do? Well, two reasons. One is eight years ago, online television wasn't as robust today. It was mostly piracy. And what we found out was we were competing with pirates largely. So we would have great, amazing SEO because we were very well reviewed. We had a lot of credibility. You'd start out doing great, but then you'd come to our site and you'd be like, well, you can't watch Dexter free online. And so they would leave, go to the next link, which was the pirate site, right. and stay there for an hour. So that was tough, like as one part of piracy at that point, there were not enough free, you know, legitimate online options yet, which obviously has changed hugely now. And, and there's definitely a place for it. TV Guide, by the way, which we own the digital version of, still has Clicker as part of it. And it's, it's still part of what it does. So it's 2016. We're recording this on a day when Apple's going to announce. You don't have to acknowledge it, but I, I will because I wrote about it. They're going to roll out their version of a TV guide. 
it seems like I, I realize again it's more complicated to do than it is to think about, but this should be a pretty solvable problem, right? There's not an infinite amount of content out there. There's not an infinite number of TV shows that I want to watch. There's more than there were in the seventies when there were three networks, but it should be something that should be fairly easy to catalog and then say, you can go watch it here, you can go watch it there, you have permission to watch it here, you need to pay for this. Why is it taking people this long to get around to what should be a pretty easy idea? Well, there's two answers to that. One is I'm not sure how much search technology you've built, but it's very complicated. I, I, it's what I do when I'm not podcasting. <laughs> I know. It's very complicated. But it's, it's doable. It's very tough. Right? Well, we're building self-driving cars. This is why everybody else who launched a product similar to Clicker only searched three databases. It was always like Amazon, Hulu, and Netflix. Whereas we were indexing hundreds of them. It was super robust, maybe too robust you know, for the time. And so doing that uh, accurately uh, and, you know, every, all the things that go into a search engine from spell check on, on down to It is harder than building Legos. It is harder than making a podcast. It's harder. But it's doable. Search is you one of the it. hardest things to do online. It's why there's not that many great search engineers. It's why Google pays them so much. It's why others can't do it. It's why when people kept trying to have, you know, free Wikipedia kind of versions of, of open source search engines, they didn't work because those – People weren't going to work Put it another way. I can go it. to my crappy Time Warner so, cable set-top box, and they've got a guide. It doesn't work very well, thing, but right. it, and So there. the future search engine for video has to cover you know all the different places that it is. They're all different, by the way. It takes months just to onboard one provider. You have to normalize all the metadata across them. You have to structure it. You know, And again, they might be structured, but it's not in a common structure, and so that's also what goes into it. So all that is why... Look, it's not the most complicated concept, but it's it's fairly novel to put it together. All right. Well, we'll see what Apple's looks like. Yeah. Um, so CBS buys you 18 months into it. Usually when a big company like that buys a startup like yours, the expectation is you're going to be there in a couple years. And then two years later, after you've been acquired, you'll say, I'm leaving to pursue other projects or to spend more time with my family or whatever it is. And what it is is you're taking another job or starting a new company. You're in five years. You didn't strike me as a guy who was going to be working at CBS for five years, so... Why are you still here? It got really interesting. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, part of it goes back to why I wanted to do that in the first place. There were a couple other places that wanted Clicker more for the technology than, you know, here, which was more about TV.com and, and kind of they had properties that fit it. But for everybody else, it was more of a search technology to fit in other things they were doing. I've been using the, the sports product for a long time. I, I almost won the board of CNET before they sold to CBS. Um, I love TV. Like I just, I was really passionate originally when we came here about building these properties out, either growing them or similar turnarounds. I love the idea of that. That's only gotten more interesting. And I love, I literally love every day being part of, you know, growing online television. I love being part of the election and CBS News and that part of it, producing the Super Bowl. You know, all these things are just super interesting. I, you know, there's not that many places online today that are as interesting as that. I'm imagining you know? Dana McClintock who runs. PR for CBS listening to this and saying that it's the correct answer. Good job. It's correct. I mean, I, you know, there are just not enough hours in the day, especially as a product person where yeah. I just love to tweak the user experience and focus on that. There's more than anybody can handle. So between that and the team that we put together and then Les is amazing to work for, really trusts us and has been, you know, a combination of his own version of visionary with digital and collaborative and, and he enforces that across the company so that it's been very easy for me to go into all the other parts of the company and be partners with them as opposed to being all political and you know having to twist arms and do all that. It's been very seamless for me Speaking doing it. Speaking of political, so you work for Les Moonves. Les Moonves works for the Redstones. 
there's an ongoing discussion about what's going to happen with CBS and Viacom, and obviously you're not going to talk about any of that, um, so I don't even bother asking you. But how do you work day to day when that discussion is going on? Because you got jerks like me asking about it, you have your own coworkers and employees asking you about it, and I'm sure you say, "Well, just heads down, going to do the best work you can." But there's a re- how do you do that in the real world? No, it's true. I mean, everybody wants to know internally, externally. The the real answer is, you know, less is mandate to us was, you know, he's a big Patriots fan. Bob Kraft is his friend. So there, it was the Bill Belichick quote of do your job and heads down and that'll all take care of itself. And so that was to me and all the other CEOs of the other groups. And so that's how we handled it. We're just focusing on that. And if, if that ever happened or didn't happen, it's it's out of our hands. It's going to take care of itself. Is it more or less distracting than working at a dot-com in the first dot-com era when everyone's stock is moving around and people are millionaires one day and out of work the next? I don't think anything could be like that. That was a once-in-a-lifetime. We were going to conferences and there would be stock tickers on the wall. <laughs> I remember going to sports oh, bars and, they would, t- and they would have CNBC on, which Dr. you tell Coop. people about today. is up $3. Yeah. Yeah, and then your your cab driver would ask yeah. you about the IPO of the day. That literally used to happen. Yeah, that was pure insanity that time period. You feel like we're getting close to that? To that with media? Yeah, media. Well, I mean, look, Uber at fifty think billion. Think about how or... different it is, right? We have real users. <laughs> A lot of people at that time obviously didn't. Real revenue, and in our case, you know, we're super. CBS and CBS Interactive are both super profitable. So I think the discipline, the, the types of businesses, and for the most part, that are rewarded now are, are just could not be more different than at that time period. At the same time, by the way, it's interesting. If you, if you do go back and look at that comm score, top 10 or 20 or 30, how many of those companies were started in the 90s or are part of companies that have been around for a long time before that? It's still over half. Survivors, the real businesses. Yeah, or it's just... You know, longevity actually, there's some benefit to longevity and not just what's brand spanking Spoken new. like a mature, <laughs> older person. Hooray for maturity. Well, never, nobody ever said, you know, before the internet, nobody ever said, ah, oh, the New York Times has been around since 18, you know, 65. That's terrible. You know, they, they, can't, they can't be trusted. They, there's nothing interesting about that. It made them more credible. And, you know, look, online, everything changes. It, it continues to. But I, I do think the fundamentals are pretty similar, so... Hooray for fundamentals. Hooray for real businesses. Hooray for an excellent conversation. Thank you, Jim Lanzo. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Thanks, you guys, for listening. Um, Normally, this is where I'm supposed to tell you where to find this stuff, but since you're listening to this and you're still listening, you know how to listen to a podcast. I do want to point out there's other awesome podcasts in the back catalog. John Favreau from Keeping It 1600, Kurt Anderson, Skip Bayless, a whole bunch of good stuff. All I really ask is that you go and subscribe and tell a friend about it. You can tweet about it. It's cool when you tell me that you like the podcast. That's great, but it's even better when you tell other people. So thank you again. Thanks to Digital Media. Thanks to our awesome sponsors. Thanks again to Jim. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. See you then.